The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. If you saw me walk up here without notes, don't get excited. I've got 40 pages here to, to cover with you. Uh, as Tracy mentioned, uh, I am Bob Nida, and I'm honored to be speaking to you today. And I am a mostly retired lawyer, and I certainly do not view myself as a preacher. I can't speak smoothly enough to be a preacher. When I was a child, I stuttered. And sometimes I still trip over my words. So if that happens or when that happens this morning, please bear with me. I am more of a teacher, a grade school teacher. (laughs) Mark in his gospel said that the common people heard Jesus gladly. He spoke with words and used illustrations that they could understand. Jesus knew that Garth Brooks would sell more albums than Luciano Pavarotti. And if you don't know who Pavarotti is, you just prove the point. So I plan to use simple language and illustrations, mostly poking fun at myself, to help you answer a question about something Jesus said. With those ground rules, let's begin. Our primary texts consist of 20 words. In the 20th chapter of Acts, not even a full verse. But before we go there, I want to repeat something that Adlai Stevenson said to, to a college audience. Now, some of you senior members will know that Stevenson was not a preacher. He was not a theologian. He was a Democrat politician who, in the 1950s, unsuccessfully ran for president, losing twice to Dwight Eisenhower. Although he wasn't a successful presidential candidate, Stevenson was a great communicator. He had a gift for making a point. At the beginning of his address to the college students, he told them this. It is my job to speak. It is your job to listen. I hope we finish at the same time. Stevenson's words have particular relevance today. As Tracy mentioned, he asked me to talk with you about money. Now, some church people, not you, but some church people, when they learn that the sermon topic is about money or giving, tend to stop listening real fast. They've heard about Malachi's storehouse, Paul's cheerful giver, and the treasure principle from the Sermon on the Mount, and they have little interest in replowing those fields. I promise, I promise you there will be no repeat of that today. I want to talk with you about what I call the Ephesian Reminder. It's based on part of verse 35 of Acts chapter 20. 
And it's one of the few places, if not the only place outside of the gospel, the gospels and the book of Revelation, where the text is in red letters. In the last half of chapter 20, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, records a meeting of the Apostle Paul with the elders of the church at Ephesus. Paul is on his way from Greece to Jerusalem, and when his ship docks in Miletus, he sent word to the elders of the church at Ephesus to meet him there. Luke also tells us that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul that hardship and imprisonment awaited him in Jerusalem. And Paul knew that he would not see those church leaders again. So in this final meeting, Paul stressed how he had held nothing back in ministering to that church. He had preached to them the whole counsel of God, and Paul cautioned them to be on guard against people who would come into into the church and attempt to destroy it. Before Paul departed, he knelt and prayed with those elders, and they embraced each other with tears. Paul's last word, Paul's last words to those men is a passage I want us to look at primarily today. Paul told them in Acts 20, verse 35, to remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. I find it significant that Paul chose those words of Jesus as his last words in his final visit with those church leaders. Why? Why is it more blessed to give than receive? And I want you to answer that. Not now, but later. And knowing this group, many of you will know the correct answer. To be sure, Jesus' statement is part of his upside-down kingdom. Love your enemies. Lose your life to save it. The greatest among you must be the servant of all. Here Jesus is saying, getting is good, giving is better. And I hope one of you will be bold enough to tell us at the end of this message why that is true. If I do my job and you do your job, there's little chance of getting it wrong. The truth of Jesus' words have been tested by social scientists, and there have been many studies. But I want to tell you of one that's particularly interesting. In December of 2010, Alan McConnell wrote about a study done in Canada. Liz Dunn, a social psychologist, gave students at the University of British Columbia an envelope containing a sum of money. 
Dunn told them that before 5 p.m. that day, they had to either, one, spend it on themselves, or two, spend it on others. Dunn found that those who gave the money to others were happier than those who spent the money on themselves. Some of the envelopes contained $5, others 20 The amount didn't matter. The results were the same. Those who gave the money away were happier. Ironically, when asked to predict which outcome would result to make people happier, those students felt that spending, uh, a, a, a group of students from the same university said that they thought that spending the money on themselves would make them happier than spending it on others. But those people's selfish assumptions proved wrong when they had the opportunity to give to someone else. And this is clue number one to the question. I want you to note this. It was solely the act of giving that produced a greater happiness or blessedness for those students. Social scientists can confirm what we already know. The words of Jesus are true. They can't, however, tell us why it is more blessed to give than receive. But you will. Now, I was a getter before I was a giver. And I can personally confirm the first part of what Jesus said, and that is, getting is good. I grew up poor in Columbus, Ohio. My father died in 1957 when I was nine years old. He left a 30-year-old widow and six children, 10 years of age and younger. There was never enough money. One fall, my mother took my brothers and sisters to a charity that gave new clothes to needy children. I received several items of clothing, but I distinctly remember one thing I got. It's rare for a 10-year-old boy to remember an item of clothing 58 years later, but I still remember it. It was a wool winter bomber jacket. It was navy blue, it zipped up the front, and across the chest, it had red, white, and blue chevrons that went like this. I love that jacket. If I could, I would have stopped growing so that I could have worn it forever. I was excited and blessed to receive it. 
But Jesus says, Jesus says, the people who gave to make that gift possible to me were more blessed than I was in receiving it. How can that be? Getting is good. Giving is better. But I didn't always act like that was true. I was like many of you. 30% of the members of Norris Ferry Community Church give nothing. And that is the case despite the pledge that all members make when they join the church to support it financially. It's a problem, and I was there myself at one time. So I know it doesn't have to be a chronic problem. And you should know this. I have no knowledge of who is included in the 30%. Now, I had an excuse for not giving. Because we were poor, my mother was often behind on her bills despite working two jobs. In the early 1960s, bill collectors would call the house and demand to know when this bill would be paid or that bill would be paid. And they weren't very pleasant about it. Obviously, this was before, before caller ID. I vowed that I would never let myself be in that position. So when Diane and I married a long time ago, I told her that we could not give to the church because I did not want to risk being unable to pay our bills. That's what I told her. That's what I said. That was my excuse. And it was lame. Totally bogus. People generally get behind on their bills because their spending exceeds their income, and this can happen because they either spend too freely or because they lose their job or suffer some other reduction in income. Neither of those applied to me. I am a cheapskate. <laughs> Always have been. I just recently learned, recently learned from Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, that frugality, a term I prefer, frugality is a spiritual discipline. I take some comfort in that. But the point is this. There was little risk that overspending would cause us to get behind on our bills. There was also little risk that I would lose my job. We're talking about the early 1970s. And back then, I worked for the telephone company. And in the 1970s, there was only one. AT&T and its subsidiaries, or Ma Bell. 
it was next to impossible to lose your job with Ma Bell. You might not move up, but unless you did something really, really bad, they would not move you out. If you had a pulse, you had a position. (laughs) So I was not going to overspend, and I was not going to lose my job. But I continued to hide behind that flimsy excuse. And why not? It worked for me. So how did I move from being a non-giver or meager giver to being a regular, regular meaningful giver? Two words. Edgar Arundel. And that's not German for near-death experience. (laughs) Edgar Arundel was a man. He was a pastor of Dawson Memorial Baptist Church in Homewood, Alabama. And Diane and I were members there from 1972 to 1975. Dr. Arundel, excuse me, Dr. Arundel, was big on Jesus. If you didn't hear Dr. Arundel mention the name of Jesus multiple times in a sermon, it was because you stopped listening. Dr. Arundel laid out what Jesus said about giving. I looked for loopholes and found none. So if you're among the 30% who give nothing, like I was at one time. I want to talk to you about passages where the Bible does address a situation in which church members promised to give money but were failing to honor that commitment. That teaching is found in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And before looking at some specific verses there, a little background will be helpful. The first century believers in Jerusalem were suffering financially. Jerusalem was a company town controlled by non-believing Jews. To follow Jesus in Jerusalem meant economic exclusion. This is what happened to the blind man in chapter 9 of John's Gospel. And you may remember the story. The man was blind from birth, and apparently there had never been an occasion when someone who was blind from birth was ever able to see again. But Jesus, Jesus healed his blind eyes, and the people were amazed, but the religious leaders were angry. And when they could not get the blind man to brand Jesus as a sinner or to admit that his healing had been faked, the scripture says they put him out or they cast him out, meaning they put him out of the synagogue, which meant he was economically excluded. And that became reality for all believers 
in Jerusalem in the first century. So the churches in Macedonia, which would be the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Berea, and also the church in Corinth had volunteered to send money to relieve the poverty of the believers in Jerusalem. The churches in Macedonia were poor. The church at Corinth was not. And the difference in wealth was large. We're talking Appalachia versus Silicon Valley. The churches in Macedonia kept their promise to send money. The church at Corinth, not so much. Oh, they returned their pledge cards, but the checks were slow coming in. So Paul did two things. First, he sent Titus to Corinth to hopefully prime the pump. And he also wrote a letter to the church at Corinth to encourage them to honor their commitment, to spur them to be promise keepers. Paul's complete instruction takes up two chapters of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, but I'll only mention three things that Paul wrote that I think apply to Norris Ferry Community Church. I will not discuss them in the same order that Paul mentioned them because I think the change in sequence will help you answer the question I have posed several times already and will pose again toward the end of this message, and that is, why is it more blessed to give than receive? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 4, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Notice this. The Macedonia church begged to be allowed to participate in this special time of giving. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, if the poor people in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea have kept the promise they made, you can do it too. And I would think there are faithful givers at North Norris Ferry Community Church who have incomes below those who give little or nothing. Paul also wrote to the church at Corinth in chapters 8, verses 11 and 12. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. 
For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What is Paul's point? It basically boils down to this. He's telling the church that none of them are being asked to give beyond their means. He's telling them, you said you wanted to give. So give what you have. And Paul knows that they have the resources to be givers. He spent 18 months ministering to that church, and he was well aware of the wealth of that church. In fact, in verse 14 of chapter 8, Paul says that their abundance can help supply the need of the believers in Jerusalem. I say this in the class I teach on Sunday mornings, that I believe that poets and lyricists are among our best theologians. And I think this poem by an anonymous author captures what Paul was saying. He wrote, It's not what you do with a million. If riches should e'er be your lot. But what you're doing at present. With a dollar and a quarter you've got. When I was a non-giver. It wasn't because I didn't have any money to give. And that wasn't the reason the church at Corinth hadn't honored their pledge. And Paul is saying to that church. You can't use a lack of money to explain your failure to give. The last thing I want us to consider is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. There he wrote, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here Paul is urging the Corinthians to prove, as the poor churches had already done, that their expressed love for the church at Jerusalem was sincere. Clue number two. Clue number two. And Paul invoked the example of the ultimate giver, Jesus. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, look at what Jesus gave up for you and compare it with what you will be giving up to help the church at Jerusalem. Jesus said of himself, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, giving is not the only measure of your sincere love for Jesus or his church, but Paul says it certainly is a measure. So, Getting is good, but giving is better. 
Or in the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than receive. So now's your chance. Someone tell all of us why. Why is it more blessed to give than receive? You know. Y'all are worse than the nine o'clock group. <laughs> we at least had one bold person who would go out on a limb. So let me see if I can help you. When you give, you are acting like Jesus. Yes. When you give, you're acting like Jesus. And there's no greater blessing a person can experience than to be like him. We're not done yet. What do you think? Did the church at Corinth step up to the plate? Did they heed Paul's teaching and give the support that they had promised to give? How many of you say no? Raise your hands. How many of you say no? How many of you say yes? Well, we, we won't decide this by a show of hands. Because the answer is in the Bible. It's found in Romans in a passage that Tracy preached on about a month ago. In Romans 15, verses 25 and 26, Paul said he was on his way to Jerusalem to to deliver the gift that the churches of Macedonia and Achaia had provided to help the saints in Jerusalem. Corinth is a church in Achaia. So, the church in Corinth did keep their promise. They did prove the sincerity of their love. And I suspect that in the process, many of them came to understand that it truly is more blessed to give than to receive. May that truth bear fruit in all of us. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that above all things that you would make us to be a people who are increasingly becoming like your son, Jesus, in whose name we offer this prayer. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.